Okay, we can begin. Um, it's a pleasure to welcome you to this Forum for European Philosophy event. Um, as you may be able to notice, I'm not Danielle Sands. Uh, I'm substituting for her. My name is Timothy Secret. I'm from the University of Winchester, lecturer in philosophy. And it's a pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Benjamin Noyes, a reader in English at the University of Chichester. Um, well known for many books, including uh, George Bataille, Critical Introduction, The Cultures of Death, The Persistence of the Negative, A Critique of Contemporary Continental Theory, and most recently, Malign Velocities, Speed and Capitalism. Um, so, uh, we're going to be having a, a response to the text by Nick Land, Machinic Desire for Textual Practice in 1993. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Juliana, and thanks you for coming, and thank you for the Forum for European Philosophy for inviting and hosting me. Um, I'm not uh, going to directly speak about the words in that land text, but I will be speaking quite a bit about Nick Land's work. Um, sticking to the brief, as I like to do, of being uh, provoked by something, i.e. annoyed, irritated, angered and enraged. Um, so that's the theme. Um, and to make it clear, this is also thinking about the question of Europe, to also stick to the brief, in terms of the geograph what I've called the geographical imaginaries of accelerationism, um, and just to make it clear, that accelerationism is what irritates, angers, and provokes me today. So firstly, just uh, to give you a brief uh, one-liner about accelerationism, because the paper will hopefully tell you more about what that means. But accelerationism, briefly stated, is the attempt to punch through the limits of capitalism by accelerating forces of abstraction and technology embedded within contemporary capitalism. Karl Polanyi famously described capitalism as a system of disembedding, tearing people from the land, making their labor freely available, and operating through money as an abstract form of equivalence. Polanyi's solution was to propose the development of new forms of embeddedness, to subject the economy to control through non-economic institutions. The accelerationists, in very different ways, respond to the contrary, suggesting the need for further disembedding, or, to use the term of Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari, deterritorialization, to release us from the fetters of capitalism. So to go further than capitalism. Capitalism has, since its origin, been a global social form. This fact has become especially visible since 1989 and then 2008. And the response of accelerationism has been to match and exceed this global reach, to be more global than global capitalism. Accelerationism has been opposed vociferously to any localism as a source or site of political resistance. In its aim for the abstract and the rational, accelerationism explicitly detaches itself from its own site of production to become a free-floating and truly global project. The contemporary iteration of accelerationism, articulated by Nick, who's in the audience, and Alex Williams in Accelerate Manifesto for an Accelerationist Politics, published in 2013, embodies this global perspective, while also aligning itself with the legacy of the Enlightenment. In giving instances of successful accelerationism, what they call socio-technical hegemony, 
they refer to the Chilean Socialist Project of Economic Management through the CyberSign system and Soviet experiments in cybernetics in the 1950s and 1960s, the later detailed in Francis Buford's historical fiction, Red Plenty. I'll talk a bit more about those examples later. But what we can see here already are a range of particular geographical references tied to a global political project. What is missing, except an implication of current political and social stasis, is a reference to Europe, or more specifically, to the UK. This is my starting point. In what follows, I want to explore accelerationism across several of its iterations in terms of what I call its geographical imaginaries. By this, I do imply a slightly pejorative sense of the forms and limits of the geographical invocations of some of the forms of accelerationism, so imaginary as in untrue. Uh, I've already implied that a key tension is between the local and the global. While accelerationism tries to restrict the local to being the pejoratized site of folk politics, meant in both the familiar and the neurophilosophical sense, it is also a problem for accelerationism. The desire to accelerate, to exceed or transcend, even this, if this transcendence is firmly based in claims to imminence and immersion, leaves behind a certain national specificity. I want to suggest that Europe also goes missing as well. This may be in part because of the unstable position of Europe, which is both not national and not global, falling between the geographic spaces which are the focus of accelerationism. I'm sorry, I am nursing a cold, by which I mean I'm keeping a cold going far beyond its uh, intended end date. Okay, leaving Europe. In acoustic analysis, Deborah Donowski and Eduardo Viveros de Castro remarked that accelerationist theorists installed in, quote, old Europe embraced the power of the negative, a nostalgia for Soviet modernization, a cold in humanism, and finally, a spiritualization of matter to replace or transcend an earth dominated by capitalism. It is for them, in some, a Eurocentric eschatology of progress that is radically indifferent to those others who have haunted but never really entered the European imagination, by which they mean specifically indigenous peoples. Certainly, while the accelerationists express an indifference to these particular others, indigenous peoples, their geographic imagination is not limited to old Europe. <coughs> in fact, on the contrary, many forms of accelerationism have evinced a fascination with sites of acceleration or modernization that are either non-European or peripheral to Europe. Also risking anachronism, past forms of accelerationism have often emerged from sites peripheral to Europe, if we think of Italian, Russian and Polish futurism, for example. In the last case, Bruno Jasienski, the leading Polish futurist, wrote that Poland was infected by the virus of modernity, to which it lacked immunity. And Polish futurism was a new antibody that tried to integrate modernity into Poland. Even in Britain, which was the country of modernity par excellence in the early 20th century, its deliberate imperial distance from Europe led to the marginality that the vorticists blasted in that brief outburst of British avant-gardism. Old and decaying Europe, Ezra Pound's old bitch gone in the teeth, 
has often been the target of accelerationists. Now, one of the debates concerning accelerationism, which we can talk about in the questions, is which accelerationism we are discussing. We might say there are two, three, many accelerationisms. Jay Guevara. Uh, here I'm concerned with the signature instances and with the recent explicit adoption of accelerationism as a slogan uh, after I'd coined it as a critical term in my book in 2010. Beware of coining critical terms. <laughs> if you're planning to do so. Now this narrowing of focus risks reinforcing an image of parochialism with which accelerationism has sometimes been charged. The virtue is one of economy and in treating the dominant almost well-known instances. For this reason, I will concentrate on the techno-nihilism articulated by Nick Land, who is the author of the extract, and the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit, the CCRU, at Warwick during the 90s and early noughties. The second instance will be the still emerging work of left accelerationism, given voice in Cernicek and Williams' manifesto and embracing a heterogeneous range of views. My aim is not simply to chide accelerationism for a lack of geographical realism, although no doubt that tone will intrude. The exercise is rather Borgesian, as I am interested in imaginary cartographies as much as real ones, or in true Borgesian fashion, in the uncanny slippage between the two. For this reason, I won't dismiss the accelerationist turn to fiction or to what the CCRU called the hyperstitional to refer to fictions that performatively generate a new reality. That said, I'm obviously interested in the tensions and contradictions of these imaginary geographies and in particular how they struggle to both exceed and circumscribe their own geographical position and the position of Europe. If accelerationism has defined its originality and necessity in temporal terms, to speed up things up into the future, uh, particularly in terms of imagining a non-capitalist future, then this pivot to the geographical I'm making, I hope, may prove a useful displacement to interrogate these claims. (coughs) So to begin with the work of Nick Land and the CCRU. If you're not familiar with it, it's weird. (laughs) It's going to sound pretty weird, but weird is interesting. Not always bad. Um, In the writing of Nick Land and the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit, the geographies and temporalities they invoke are those of science fiction, predominantly. Central to their argument for acceleration is that deterritorialization, this kind of complete disembedding of everything, has already been realized in the future, And what we experience at the moment, or in their moment, as they were writing in the 1990s, in the words of Nick Land, are tendrils of tomorrow burrowing back. These tendrils could be drugs, biotechnology, electronic music, cyberpunk fiction, and so on. So in their present in the 90s, they have signs of this realised future. This temporal model is predicated on a geographical model of a future that is infiltrating our presence. This infiltration takes place from what they call Siberia, the true base of revolution hidden from terrestrial immune politics in the future. Siberia is the site of realized acceleration, or in the language of Deleuze and Guattari, absolute deterritorialization. It is also, to borrow Mark Oge's term, a non-space. 
more radically than Ogay's examples of airports and transit points, Siberia is a non-space as a fictional construct, science fiction concept, as an empty transit point for insurgent intensities. In the terms of the CCIRU, Siberia is hyperstitional, and it tries to loop back in time to performatively bring about its future existence, which has already happened. So this is a time travel paradox. Something in the future comes back through various signs to bring about its future existence. This is what Nick Land's recently taken to calling Templexity um, on the basis of that film I haven't seen called Looper with Bruce Willis in it. You're familiar with the Terminator, that kind of thing. So, yeah. That sort of thing. This is not the only geographical space invoked by Land and the CCIU. <coughs> in their text, we find a conflict between spaces that encourage and accelerate the infiltration from the future and those that resist and immunise against this acceleration. In the current moment, one of those sites that welcomes infiltration is the urban as the non-specific site of what they call plant, Sadie Plant and Nick Land call cyborgs blissed out on the future. This is the urban as the space of clubbing or rave, not an actual space but a virtual space. So obviously one of their invocations of the future was I'll talk about is dance music in the 90s. Uh, we can dispute this identification given that much of the location of the club space, uh, especially in the speeded up form of post-rave jungle or drum and bass, was defiantly suburban uh, rather than urban, as I do come from Bromford. <laughs> defiantly <laughs> suburban and home of the jungle record label called Suburban Bass. Empirical evidence. Uh, <laughs> perhaps there is something of a wish fulfillment in this desire for the urban, in that it was articulated from, I so I've heard, two people at the least in the audience can confirm, the strictly unglamorous Coventry. Uh, the urban for Land and his colleagues was the urban of the film Blade Runner, or William Gibson's The Sprawl. If you know William Gibson's science fiction novels, The Sprawl is a kind of extended. A city that's developed on North America from Boston to Atlanta. It's all become one vast urban space in the future, rather than London or Manchester. If this is a rather conventional articulation of acceleration with the urban, if you think about futurisms and past forms of modernization, it's usually the urban is seen as a site of speed. Uh, it is also perhaps an intervention against the domin dominance of the rural in Britain, something I'll come back to. T.J. Clark has noted the difficulty that British culture has had, quote, to dislodge the main figures and plot lines that England has inherited as a picture of itself from the 18th century. The cult of the countryside, the comedy of upper-class manners, the dull decencies and resentments of the new middle class, the lure of London, the grandeur and ambiguity of empire. So I'll come back to this problem of the rural uh, later. Now I want to move to what is perhaps the most valorised and central instance of accelerated space for land and CCIU, and that's the jungle. This is a multi-referential term which involves, invokes a hyperstitional form of resistance. It's fluid and in Deleuze and Guattari's vegetative terminology, rhizomatic. 
Jungle refers to the musical form of post-UK rave music, which deployed sped-up breakbeats, notably the Amen break, often aggressive sampling and a bass-heavy sound. This distinctive dance music subculture provided a metaphorics of acceleration, a particular dark space of dehumanisation, contrary to the sometime neo-hippie presentation of rave culture, and a particular dynamics, as I've mentioned, of suburban and urban space. In the words of the CCRU, jungle, as a form of music, functions as a particle accelerator, seismic base frequencies engineering a cellular drone which immerses the body in intensity at the molecular level. In self-referential manner, this musical form, or dance music, also played with its own name, being called jungle, which could have been racist, as in jungle music. Uh, an early uh, jungle track like Releases the Jungle from 1993 samples the 1987 sci-fi film The Predator's line, The Jungle, it just came alive and took him. In that film, the camouflaged alien predator stalks the US Special Forces team in Central America. This sci-fi reference displaces any primitivist thematics which were uncongenial to land and the CCRU, so this jungle is not. The jungle of primitivism is the jungle of technological infiltration, if you know the film. Uh, Their jungle was a space of sped-up music, the sci-fi predator as camouflaged an invisible agent, and so a techno-natural space. The music itself also extended jungle as a designation or metaphor. Hyperon experiences Lord of the Null lines, samples Predator 2's line, fucking voodoo magic, linking jungle to the urban jungle. So I don't know if you've seen Predator 2. It's quite good. Uh, Strange film in some ways. Uh, it is 1990 film invokes it certainly invokes a problematic racialized vision of the US near future with the predator now stalking in an LA torn apart by warring drug gangs so it begins from this scene where firstly you think it's sort of in the jungle and then it's actually in LA um, in the urban LA Yvonne Tasker the film critic has noted the film's relentless articulation of LA as jungle and its invocation of racist tropes, even as the film tries to enact a certain unstable distance from them. So particular racial tropes about the gangs. in The The first Predator film obeyed what Tasker called the conventions of the Vietnam Jungle Patrol movie, which are then modulated in the urban environment of Predator 2, so both films involve this kind of um, stalking pursuit. This reference to Vietnam invokes another CCR reference for the jungle. Francis Ford Coppola's psychedelic version of the Vietnam War and Apocalypse Now. Uh, Michael Hare's book of reportage dispatches. Michael Hare wrote, um, I believe, the voiceover for Martin Sheen um, on the boat. In both cases, again, there is a crucial fusion between the accelerative rush of speed and the notion of guerrilla war. This identification of, is, of course, unstable. Speed, in the Viet- context of the Vietnam War, is associated with the U.S. war machine, while resistance is associated with the ecological and durational resistance of the Vietnamese. In terms of speed, the helicopter is crucial. And there is also a classic jungle track called the Helicopter Tune by Deep Blue. 
And this is especially seen, if you know Apocalypse Now, with the famous sequence of the attack helicopters to Wagner. There's also a famous moment in Hare's uh, dispatches. He says, uh, Hare is writing his book of reportage about his time as a journalist. In the months after I got back, the hundreds of helicopters I'd flown in began to draw together until they'd formed a collective meta-chopper. And in my mind, it was the sexiest thing going. Saver, destroyer, provider, waster, right hand, left hand, nimble, fluent, canny and human, hot steel, grease, jungle-saturated webbing, sweat cooling and warming up again, cassette rock and roll in one one ear and door gunfire in the other, fuel, heat, vitality and death, death itself, hardly an intruder. Hare's panegyric would be influential on the techno-scientific litanies found in accelerationist works. The fusion he outlines is precisely one between the natural, vitality, the human, the jungle, and the technical, hot steel, fuel, etc. The accelerationist guerrilla in this mythology, infiltrating from the future, is a figure that draws on the Vietnam imagery of the invisible enemy, predator camouflage, the hacker subculture, and so on, to create a synthetic image of non-localizable subversion. The space through which this figure moves is mimetically non-localizable in the form of the jungle. If you remember, the predator in the film has this mimetic camouflage, so his skin looks like the jungle, so you can't see him. Which is both literal and metaphorical, ranging from real space to cyberspace. The fascination with the jungle lies precisely in the way it slips and slides, spreads and subverts, is neither countryside nor city, but also not an actual jungle, rather a virtual jungle. Europe figures very little in these uh, texts, except as a space contrary to acceleration. Sadie Plant and Lick Land declare 1972 was designed as a year of European security integration, and as the whole system comes together, it becomes increasingly informative to simulate the thought of the cops. Europe is the space that locks down the future, the space of the cops that resist the nomadic jungle or the future Siberia. It is the place of the fatherland, and the fatherland is cryogenic, a fantasy of perfect preservation whose Bronze Age ancestors are even now thawing out in the Alps, frozen assets under attack. This is the reference to the discovery of Otzi, a naturally created mummy of a man who died around 3,300 BC and was discovered in a glacier on the Austro-Italian border in 1991, having watched one of those informative documentaries about uh, Otzi quite interesting about the disputes between Austria and Italy about who owned him what nationality he belonged to considering his death date Um, Europe is a site in which according to a CCRU accumulated stock footage backs up speculative Euro identity and in which quote telecommercialised nomadic multiplicity aborts nascent Euro unity the schema is obvious Europe is the site of re-territorialisation especially Euro unity while the jungle embodies fluid deterritorialization. What is striking here is how Europe figures as a form of constriction and a somewhat ironic convergence with the tropes of Euroscepticism, Brussels as red tape, the inertial butter mountains and wine lakes, so familiar to residents of the UK. The drive to the future, embodied in capitalist forms of acceleration, requires a neglect and transcendence of European space which is often then vectored through a valorization of certain British experiences, notably post-rave culture, which is one form of telecommercialized nomadic multiplicity. So that's Land's work. 
Europe as negative, Europe as the site to be escaped from. While accepting certain elements of the legacy of Nick Land and CCRU, the contemporary rearticulations of accelerationism also distance themselves from Land's embrace of capitalism. For Nick Land, the final realised acceleration was capitalism as uh, absolute social form. So contemporary accelerationists reject this embrace of capitalism and in the Manifesto for an Accelerationist Politics, Nick Cernicek and Alex Williams argue that land succumbs to a vision of speed rather than acceleration. Land is only able to see acceleration in form, form of capitalist production and not understand accelerationism as a process of complex navigation and reworking. If one were inclined to defend Nick Land, which I certainly am not, although I know other people are, there is actually a slightly more complex version of time in land that you could do that. In spatial terms, for contemporary accelerationists, this results in a less insurgent and hyperbolic vision of conceptual, conflictual spaces. Cernicek and Williams adopt a, diagno- a diagnostic and realistic model, so they don't go for these science fictional imaginary cartographies that much. In their work, the horizon of the current conjuncture is one of, quote, global civilization. So the negative form of this global horizon is catastrophic climate change and global capitalism. That's the bad global global. Cernicek and Williams, however, really want to take aim at what they see as one of the primary faults of contemporary leftism, which is, quote, neo-primitivist localism. <coughs> this is the tendency to valorize local enclaves as sites of resistance to capitalism, and to insist on an exit from capitalist relations by return to -to face-to-face forms of interaction and conviviality. Certainly there is some slippage here. Not many, very few in fact, on the left or in radical milieus, embrace a full-blown primitivism of the kind associated with the anti-civilization currents of the type inspired by John Zerzan and others. Which, you know, if you don't know John Zerzan, it's worth reading for a laugh. Um... He re- everything went wrong with the birth of language, which I think is quite a good. We need to go back before language. He's that primitivist. Um, how you do that would be interesting. The force of Sony Checks and Land's accusation derives in part from running together those who embrace an extreme primitivism, of which there are some. Uh, even to this point of trying to reject human language, with a broader structure of feeling that contests the reign of technology and capital. Certainly the contrast is drawn in a polemical manner, which perhaps due to the special form of the manifesto and the polemic is not so attentive to the various forms of protest which have made use of technology and which are driven by national and global concerns. What drives the new accelerationists is an attempt to meet and match the global horizon of capital. In this context, particular spaces are relatively few and far between. The more specifically valorised moments concern past experiments that tried to instantiate a new technological mastery of the economy, notably, as I mentioned, the Chilean project CyberSign, which under the UK pioneer of cybernetics, uh, the scholar Stafford Beer, was an attempt to develop a management system for the Chilean economy during the presidency of Salvador Allende. The actual results of this experiment from the study I've read seem quite equivocal, 
with even those working on the project of how unsure of how exactly it would properly operate. Of course, as you know, uh, it never had the chance to properly operate. Under extreme economic pressure from the United States, which would soon end in the engineered coup that destroyed the democratically elected Allende government, the system ended up being mainly used for communication, to uh, sort of fight fires, if you like, keep things running. The other example for Sonichek and Williams is the experiment of the Soviet economists in the 1950s and 60s <coughs> during the thaw period to modernise the Soviet planned economy. Also um, not successful, obviously. These references to historical socialism are interesting, perhaps for, also for what they omit in the various other European and world experiments in socialism that also engaged with technology. To follow the logic of the new accelerationisms, however, we can see that the key to their spatial logic is not simply the valorization of the global, but more specifically of the abstract. <coughs> this is what Cernicek and Williams call the modernity of abstraction, complexity, globality, and technology. And the, quote, world of space travel, future shock, and revolutionary technological potential. Their interest lies in retooling such forms of abstraction as high-frequency trading, and the deployment of the algorithmic and capitalist culture. In this case, we can note that despite the self-image of high-frequency trading as operating below levels, well, it actually does operate below levels of human perception and as having global effects, <coughs> it is also very materially grounded in forms of infrastructure, from shifting server farms closer and closer to trading floors and carving cabling through mountains to shave nanoseconds off trading margins. Accelerationism in philosophical terms includes the embrace of the space of reasons as an inhuman site of normative experimentation and development that can accelerate human capacities of reason. But the litmus test, at least according to the new accelerationists, is the ultimate breakout, space travel. The ultimate escape from the territory of the Earth. Antonio Negri, in his reflections on the manifesto, argues that, quote, it inhabits an insistence on the territory as terror, <coughs> by which he means an insistence on territory as a site of struggle between forces of deterritorialization and re-territorialization. What is striking, however, <coughs> and what is shared with Landian accelerationism, despite their criticisms, is the deliberate lack of specificity about this terror, this land, this territory. In the embrace of the abstract as site of acceleration, what are less explored are the processes and forces that produce abstraction, as we noted with high-frequency trading. I think the attention to abstraction is crucial, as is the need not simply to treat abstraction as bad and the concrete and material as good. The difficulty is, however, that the embrace and valorization of the abstract is remarkably quiet about the geographical effects of sites and forms of abstraction that have to be gathered to form a global space, whether regarded negatively, as in the case of capitalism, or positively, as in the space of reason. So, while attention to effects of deterritorialization and reterritorialization is necessary, although this binary itself can appear rather simplistic at times as a way of mapping state and capitalist power, more attention to the territories of accelerationism is also required. There is no doubt that answers to this problem can come from within the accelerationist problematic, for example, via Deleuze and Guattari's work on geotrauma and geophilosophy. 
But I'm suggesting that the neglect of the site of terror as actual space, (coughs) rather than the virtual possibility or imaginary site, significantly blunts the hard-edged geopolitical realism contemporary accelerationism sometimes claims. Okay, so now uh, I spend some time slagging off Britain, which is something I always enjoy, uh, because I'm British. That's what we do. So, the site of accelerationism. While its historical explanations have been disputed, Perry Anderson's famous 1964 characterization of Britain as dominated by a fixation on the aristocracy and driven by the demands of the city ring true, at least at the sometimes unreliable level of felt experience. Uh, if you want to see a rebuttal, uh, David Edgerton's works uh, spent some time doing this, especially around the aircraft uh, as Britain's kind of embrace of technology. The dependence on credit-driven spending through, the high, through home ownership, the shifting of employment and growth to service industries, the effects of the financial crisis and a resurgent right, render a Britain of charity shops and simulated European cafes, elite lifestyles celebrated in Made in Chelsea, and the lifestyles of the poor stigmatised in Jeremy Kyle, and a whole aesthetic of austerity from cupcakes to upcycling to assuage and empower the middle class we all supposedly are. This feudal financialization, as Nina Power characterizes it, only seems to intensify what Anderson called, quote, the projective image of society naturally held and propagated by a landowning class. In this context, the context of Britain, the dream and desire for modernization has persisted from Howard Wilson's proclamations of the white heat of technology, the elite fascination with Margaret Thatcher as a symbol of the destruction of the inertia of the British system, down to the ongoing neoliberal project executed by both Labour, Tories and Liberal Democrats. In the left forms of this thought, Europe has been a crucial counter-model of successful development and a socialist future. Uh, Someone like Tom Nairn, for example. On the right and in the Atlanticist wing of the Labour Party, the USA has been the preferred model of modernisation. There are other mutant forms, perhaps most weird and literally delirious, Uh, Neville Shute's imagined future Britain salvaged from Labour domination by a resurgent Commonwealth and the will of the monarchy in his 1953 novel In the Wet, a rare instance of royalist accelerationism. I can't honestly recommend you to read it, but it is a truly, truly bonkers novel um, where the central character is hallucinating. He is delirious, dying of a fever in the Australian outback and tells another character his alternate life where he was a pilot for the royal family in this alternate royalist future where the Commonwealth had developed a system of uh, multiple voting for the most technologically and intellectually competent uh, while Britain stagnated in a kind of variant of the 1948. Uh, you know, we still held on to one person, one vote and had slid into a socialist decline. So, very strange. Um, We can understand a whole strain of British apocalyptic fiction from John Wyndham to the early J.G. Ballard as a series of exercises in what John Wyndham calls in the day of the Triffids, world narrowing. This narrowing can be seen as a response to the felt inertia of Britain's post-war settlement. It is not difficult to detect in this fiction a deep hostility to the welfare state and its humanitarian impulse, however flawed that impulse might have been. In reply to sustaining people in relative decency, especially the working class, the writers of apocalyptic science fiction express a class discomfort that often takes the form of violent resentiment. 
This could be related back to H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds, in which the narrator encounters a working-class soldier who lucidly sketches a future in which the upper upper and middle classes will happily collaborate with the Martian colonizers because of their lack of spirit. The soldier, however, is no future resistor. He is digging a pointless tunnel very slowly and more obsessed with drinking champagne and brandy than with any counterattack. In John Christopher's 1956 novel, The Death of Grass, which, as its title says, is about that, uh, the middle-class protagonists make a startlingly rapid transition from civilization to violence as they deal in a world in which a virus is killing off the various grasses, including wheat and rice. While the government plans nuclear attacks on its own cities to reduce a population facing starvation, the narrator welcomes a final clarification of escape. Quote, Things will be hard, but it may not be a bad life. It will be up to us to what we make of it. At least we shall be our own masters. It will no longer be a matter of living on the sufferance of a state that cheats and bullies and swindles its citizens, and at last, when they become a burden, murders them. What is at stake is a reaction against the world that restrains impulses and constricts a certain fraction from expressing their own particular view of modernization. The result is an apocalyptic consciousness, which ironically results not in technological acceleration, but a return to bucolic violence, in which the countryside becomes a refuge and site of class warfare now expressed openly. So in all these novels, people flee to the countryside, set up an armed camp, and start shooting anyone who trespasses. The artistic uh, representative of this attitude, although with much less violence, was L.S. Lowry. In T.J. Clarke's masterful reading of his painting, Clarke notes that Lowry's work is... Now, Lowry's art is world historical. It is modest, constricted, monotonous, awkward, obvious, and world historical just because of these qualities. While, as Clarke details, Lowry had a sympathetic, if distant eye on the fading industrial landscape of Britain from his position as a rent collector, this vision could turn sour or disturbing. The relative sympathy of a painting like Ancoats Hospital Outpatients Hall finds its disturbing obverse in the painting The Cripples, 1949, which I suggest you look up to see how disturbing it is. Here, as Clark notes, Lowry lapses into cliché, and I would add into something that, while presented as sympathetic, verges on a voyeuristic biologization of class, neglecting the processes by which class injury is written on the body. This unpleasant, to put it mildly, uh, strain in British post-war culture, which you can actually trace quite broadly, uh, if you're particularly in literature, anti-welfare statism, is certainly and thankfully largely not part of a uh, large part or part of accelerationism. The exception would be Nick Land's more recent turn to neo-reactionary positions, which embraces a futuristic ethnocentric feudalism, and of which I wish to say little. The strands of left accelerationism are opposed against any phantasmatic apocalyptic return to the past as a return to a society of naked struggle purged of the inertial masses. In fact, at certain points, the contemporary accelerationists welcome certain features of British culture as embodying acceleration, unsurprisingly, UK dance music. While I'm not accepting an image of inertial Britain as such, This modified vision does tend to return to Britain as site of both inertia and acceleration without offering much analysis of how, historically, these tendencies and tensions have been expressed. What seems to me to be peculiarly British about this is a tendency to introspection that doesn't or hasn't yet fully engaged with the territorial linkages, imaginary and real, of the different projects of modernisation, socialist and capitalist. 
While, as I've noted, this UK imaginary has often been dominated by images of America, for example, in the work of the independent group of artists in the 1950s, there are also other cross-currents and connections. Contemporary accelerationism studiously ignores this American imaginary, but it doesn't engage with other imaginaries that focus on Europe. One thinks of UK mods, modernists, and their fascination with Italian style and design, and also other European avant-garde currents. We might also consider the tensions between European projects of neoliberalism, for example, in the work of Wilhelm Röpke, and the European projects of socialism, for example, the Swedish model, which formed such a large part of debate in Britain. Europe is largely missing from the contemporary accelerationisms, which prefer to switch between past moments of techno-socialism and a global horizon that only references Europe surreptitiously by the concept of enlightenment. Okay, so conclude then. The provocation accelerationism poses to Europe is forget Europe. This forgetting is a Nietzschean active forgetting in which Europe is integrated as a territory to be forgotten, a necessary counterweight of inertia that forms the site which must be forgotten to embrace other global forms of acceleration. What this forgetting forgets is that the very site from which acceleration is to take place and with which it must engage. It also ironically forgets the site that Nietzsche regarded as the key to acceleration. This is from Nietzsche's Will to Power, the series of notes under that title. The homogenizing of European man is the great process that cannot be obstructed. One should even hasten it, or it should be accelerated. The necessity to create a gulf, a distance, order of rank is given eo ipso, not the necessity to retard this process. For Nietzsche, this homogenization or leveling may appear to go against the ranking and ordering he desires, but he also sees this homogenization as a hothouse to breed a new process of ranking. I'm certainly not endorsing this Nietzschean project, which is notoriously equivocal, to put it mildly. What interests me is how, at the origin of accelerationism, we find Europe, certainly an imaginary Europe, which will later be absorbed and forgotten. Now, even in Nietzsche's project, the image of Europe is a flattened and leveled one, whereas we witness in reality the often violent tensions of this project of homogenization, not least in places like Ukraine. This metaphysical vision is a vision of tendencies, not concerned with actualities, but with virtual possibilities. It is this inheritance that, in very different ways, accelerationisms of various types have tried to activate, reinforce, and accelerate. What is striking is that these reactivations, uh, Europe is largely forgotten, even as a site of levelling that might negatively lead to a new moment. There is no traversal of Europe, and the irony is that speaking from old Europe is exactly what accelerationism accelerationism would not like not to do. More damagingly, this forgetting of Europe, or departing from it, continues to exercise hidden effects. If Deepresh Takrabati wrote of provincialising Europe, then the risk run by accelerationism is globalising Europe in the guise of a refusal of Europe. The exporting or globalising of Europe takes place in the abstraction of, of place to inhabit a global field, which is still identified with the Promethean and the Enlightenment. This project can't be realised in Europe or by Europe, for example with Nick Land's wish to switch to China, but this does not mean it simply escapes Europe. A disavowed Europeanism takes place. I know very well we don't want to be European, but all the same we rely on European values. This philosophical revenge of the idea of Europe, even in the claim to its radical displacement, cannot simply be accelerated away from. 
To speed away from Europe in this way is to speed all the more quickly towards it. It's much less sexy and speedy, but to displace the idea of Europe or to truly test or probe a metaphysics of abstraction that remains tied to particular forms of space requires more interrogation of this spatial metaphysics. Europe as a non-place has a malign enough history, but to escape this history requires a closer geometry of imperialism that currently accelerationism has or can provide. Accelerationism as a metaphysics of tendencies tied to unequivocal processes of acceleration or levelling, even when complicated by counter-tendencies, remains a flattened vision that absorbs and integrates differences, creating a smooth space that flees but never quite escapes. The revenge of Europe is the revenge of an empty master signifier, repressed but prevalent, which deterritorializes the globe in the name of a territory, which is the privileged site of this process, even if this process is directed primarily against its own starting point. This is where a certain narcissism does intervene, but in the mode of turning against an empty self, a rage against a desolate and inertial internal world, which is the world of Europe, or led within that the UK. The concomitant reaction to this emptiness is a grandiosity that remakes the entire world to solve a problem posed from one territory. If we wish to divest ourselves of European narcissism, accelerating out of it, I'm suggesting, is not the exit door we were promised. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I imagine a lot of questions will come up from that. That's a fertile material. And I want to go first. Uh, the mic. Thanks, Ben. That was great. Um, I was just thinking, it's more of a comment than a question, thinking about um, uh, kind of exiting Europe or being, you know, what it means to exit from one way to the other. I mean, I was just recently in um, Sarajevo in Bosnia and... Um, you know, in, in that sense, you have a kind of image of accelerationism without Europe from the other side. If you, I mean, where you have asset stripping, you have, you know, the sense in which these peripheral populations are basically going to be, uh, well, they are being, but increase. You know, you get rid of industry, you just have service economies in the sense that. Is this even on? Um, is All right, where you have, you know, where you have basically like populations are going to be kind of like railroaded into kind of like uh, call centre type jobs, if if even that, you know, um, and you have that, and so, and and Europe in that sense represents something, I guess, quite different, but like both threat and promise, mm. I suppose. Yeah. Um, but from the other side, I, I guess, and I, I just want you to maybe like say a bit more about the, you know, your final points about ex, you know exiting Europe. I mean, you know, like the Cameron British Bill of Rights thing, the anti-EU EU rhetoric from the British side is like very different from the resistance to EU in the from the other, the you know, Eastern European, Southeastern European side. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, I mean, I guess that's part of what I'm waving at and not doing. Um, but that's part of the kind of complexity of saying, like, the situation in Ukraine, which I, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to even start to try to start to pretend to imagine to analyse. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that's what I'm suggesting about the different forms of resistance, thinking that, yeah, I knew people in Croatia similarly who were anti-EU on the left, and then it just got wiped out by, you know, they got voted in and it will all happen. So I think, um, you know, yeah, there are, there are points of resistance to those processes of European homogenization, territorialization, which are, you know, driven by capitalism. 
And then there are those engineered or structured responses that are populist, you know, anti-Europe, which, you know, in the UK context, which I think I know something about, seems to me to belong to a very traditional right that was never that happy about Europe anyway. And, you know, in those contexts, you know, it's often blamed on the working classes as you know, we're the UKIP voters, um, whereas it seems like it's the usual nutcase right-wingers. Uh, pardon my lack of political analysis. Um, so, yeah, I think that's... The, I mean, I'm not kind of s- celebrating Europe no, no, I know. Uh, as a counterpoint, you know, to, to the global project that accelerationism articulating, of which I have some points of agreement with, well, I'm, you know, I'm saying exactly that. Mm. You know, that unevenness, that different geographies, the fact that Europe itself is this kind of geographical mess. Yeah, is, I think there's something about that kind of combination of anti, um, you know, the anti-European and the anti-nationalist, like, at the same time. Mm. You know, like, what does it mean to resist <coughs> ethno-nationalism and Europe? Like at the same, you know, which seems like, an, you know, in some ways it's like a kind of negative or even nihilistic political project because it relates neither in a sense to territory nor to belonging, but it's still, you know, but it seems to be the only way out of a certain form of fascism and a certain form of, you know, incorporate, you know, very, very asymmetrical incorporation to this economic world. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, I don't have an answer. That was always the debates that tore apart the British left, yeah. you know, was like, you know, Nan, Tom Nan, you know, was... Scotland should become independent, which would have been great in the 80s. You know, all left and gone to socialist Scotland. You know, then it was Europe. So there's always been this kind of search for a counterbalancing point. But without that, you end up with this kind of abstract invocation of all nationalism is bad, and there's no counterpoint, which seems, like you say, equally nihilistic. So I think accelerationism, all of us are struggling with that problem. Of yeah. How do you articulate a political project beyond just saying it should be global? It should involve everyone. You know, it's that's just the start of all the problems. I, th- I think I think there's something very interesting going on in that space at the moment. But um, anyway, mm. thank you very much. You said something about cybernetics and. The Soviet Union, you said, if I remember, it was developed by an American named Norman Wiener, and um, it's very interesting at the height of the Cold War that they seem to use an American concept uh, for Russian economic development. Could you just say a little bit more about this, uh, how that got to happen, and the influence of cybernetics and the Russian experience of it? I wish I could. I can only tell you what little I know. Um, probably Nick, other people here could tell you more. I mean, I think there were attempts to engage in technological transfer, from particularly of computing technology, to uh, reform the Soviet planned economy. So as far as I understand it, what those attempts mainly... The computers, the importation of computers mainly ended up, the computers ended up doing is calculating wages. So not actually distributing goods more efficiently. So there was a problem, it depends on your sort of political views, whatever, but there was a problem with this attempt to technologically transfer computers into the Soviet Union. I mean, they were aware of the gap, you know, obviously through the military gap and through their uh, social system that they were falling behind in computers so they were trying to catch up the problem was then it seemed to be the kind of application with them within this their existing planned economy um, didn't allow 
a kind of reform of that. So the result was they weren't successfully used. In the Chilean example, um, you know, stuff had been, I mean, I think, you know, it's that question which accelerationism poses, you know, is a te- how neutral is a technology? You know, how much is a technology determined by its production? So, you know, is, like you say, Norbert Weiner was the founder, cybernetics obviously used in the nuclear programs and you know, internet design and loads of other things. So the question there is, how can you kind of reuse a technology, which is what, um, you know, a question accelerationism poses. I guess the problem with the two examples of the Soviet planned economy and the Chilean attempt were that they weren't successful, you know, not just solely due to the technology, but due to the kind of political context, in one case a coup and in the other uh, version of reaction. So it seems to me that the examples pose all the problems that they suggest that we solve. You know, how would you redo that? Um, you mentioned uh, at a certain point the um, question of the link between accelerationism, especially in its futurist variants, uh, and um, conjunctures of backwardness or catching up and the like. And I, I was wondering if you could perhaps expand on what that says about what at least seems to me on the face of it to be one of the you know, maybe key fallacies of a lot of accelerationism, which has to do with the relationship between experience and abstraction. So the, the, on, on one level, one of the things that's curious, at least about the Soviet case, for instance, is that imaginaries, aesthetic and political imaginaries of acceleration take place in conditions of, in fact, extreme deindustrialization. Mm. So during the you know, Russian Civil War, which is really the period for futurism and mm. constructivism and suprematism, you have a situation in which the country is rapidly deindustrializing. The actual working class has more or less disappeared, as both Bukharin and Lenin admit. And that, uh, you know, that comes out in uh, T.J. Clark's mm. treatment of of Malevich and Elisitsky and the like. Whilst um, the situation of the 30s is one of, you know, is one at least at the level of productivity and the like, um, you know, as well as of uh, uh, acceleration and the activity of killing, uh, is, uh, you know, quite bluntly, a period of uh, where Russia is actually transformed at both the industrial and cultural level. So it's very, something very common that historians of the period say that actually, you know, Moscow in the early 20s and Moscow before the revolution were more or less the same place. Uh, Moscow in 29 is basically an unrecognizable uh, place. Uh, even though this is taking place with a very conservative, so to speak, uh, aesthetic and political imaginary of socialist humanism, and you know, etc., uh, and in fact, a kind of liberal constitution that's you know published in thirty-seven, uh, the same year of the peak of the terror. So I, w- I was wondering, really, what you know, what you make of this kind of temporal paradox or unevenness if it says something about imaginaries of of Europe now. And I wonder also, because I thought it was sort of implied in your discussion of contemporary Europe about the relationship between your critique of accelerationism and geographic conceptions 
of unevenness, which seem to be very closely linked to a conception of capitalism that is not homogenous. Mm. You know, it might homogenize, you know, in the Neil Smith sense, it might produce sameness, but it can only do so by producing really radical uh, spatial differences, uh, including through the industrialization, surplus populations, and the like. So that there's no, you know, so it seems that one of the mistakes is to actually think that homogenization and speed are things that appear as homogenization mm. and speed, which seems yeah. to be very contrary, at least to kind of Marxian understanding of that. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's something I was sort of saying also, I mean, there's a chapter in the book on the Russian stuff, and something I was thinking about with Britain, you know, I mean, it's the felt experience of deceleration, you know, you have to accelerate something to be an accelerationist, you want to speed up something and feel this need and it's always obviously I think going to emerge out of a sense of backwardness rather than in a place that's a kind of you know leading cultural edge because you you know in a sense it doesn't become an object of conscious desire where it's just happening so there seems to be a sense where at least for the futurisms which you know I, I would sort of broadly characterize as accelerationists they emerge out of that sense of inertia, you know, the funniest Marinetti's objection to pasta, because it slows down Italians, which is, pasta does slow you down. Um, you know, Italians should embrace a speedy diet, um, which is my, one of my favourites. But yeah, so you get that in the, the Russian example, Italian, the Polish, um, and again, I think that's what's interesting about the British context, where you have the Vorticists, who are an avant-garde, are very small compared to others, and lots of other reasons but you know Wyndham Lewis's response to the, the Italian futurists is we've always had machines you know why are you going on about it you know they're just our lived experience we've been doing this for ages better than you, you know, stop stop whining uh, virtually literal quote without the racist bits that Lewis said to him so there does seem to be this sort of you know contradictory uh, movement where it's in places of felt inertia or deceleration that you seem to require an accelerationist to come along um, and I suppose the trajectory of Nick Land who lives in Britain and proclaims accelerationism then moves to China which he sees as the site of accelerationism you know, is symptomatic because then until recently he doesn't seem to write that much about it because why does he need to you know, China's doing it by his model I guess the like you say, though, the problem with, with it, like in the case of Britain, where Land is saying it, is as Edgerton says, you know, I mean, there is this huge amount of technological development in Britain around air power with, and warfare that gets then ignored. You know, I, you know, the British image of ourselves as rural and dominated by this aristocratic and you know, never having properly, you know, we started industrialization, then we somehow failed to carry it on is actually not true to a certain line of technological and industrial development. So I think, you know, while this is what the accelerationism is a kind of imaginary in that sense about these problems of grasping these different processes because they're not, they're abstractions that are not always felt accurately at the level of our experience. You know, the different temporalities that we experience as individuals within particular national global cultural social systems are not always reflective of 
you know, how they're doing, if you like, or you know, what kind of measures you're making. Um, <coughs> and again, you know, I suppose I think that's why it's sort of interesting that America is so sort of absent as well, in some ways, from some of the debates. You know, that sort of America seems to go missing as just just being bad. You know, so there's a sort of absence of Europe and an absence of America, which seems to me very symptomatically uh, British. Um, on the second point, I mean, yeah, I would agree. You know, I mean, I, it's often an unpopular opinion, but I, I'm not a sociologist, but I tend to think capitalism is a global social form. You know, my sort of stupid empirical test is try and make it around the world without money. Um, but you know, it is uneven within that. But it's always a process of totalization and also deinvestment. Like you, see, you know, this is the, in a sense, what's going to happen in Eastern Europe mm. is a, you know what they did everywhere else. They'll take out all the social support and you the freedom to um, live like we do. So that's you know that's the process of generated unevenness again. So this sort of catastrophic. Um, collapse in life expectancy in post-89 Russia. Um, you know, the fact that in the UK, the spending on the state is returning to levels of the 1930s. You know, that seems to be the aim. There's a massive collapse in public service down to, you know, to be empirical. My sister works in the library in Havering in Essex, and they're going to close 75% of the libraries and run the rest predominantly with volunteers um, beyond closing loads of other things. Um, so this sort of, you know, you get this kind of massive deinvestment in some areas, reinvestment in others. You know, I, you know, I think <coughs> that's part of the processes we have to grasp, whereas the desire for accelerationism seems to me to somehow often obscure, you know, the material that you would have to work with. <laughs> the situation from which you would be emerging, the struggles that you would have to be engaging in before you could get to engaging with issues of high technology or abstraction or reason, you know, the kind of, not exactly local, but the, the place you're forced to be in by these, these effects. I mean, like, I already asked questions. Is there anyone else on that question? Yeah, sorry, Ben, I just have so much to say about this. Um, I, I think it's very clear that the, like, what is being accelerated in a sort of service economy is, is like uh, miserable affects, if you sort of mean, you know, like if you think about the kind of ideological impact of like there is no alternative and so on. And, you know, what happens at the same time is like the destruction of the welfare state. And, you know, you, you absolutely well identified this kind of left critique of welfareism, um, you know, and, and now you get this situa- perverse situation where people who are ostensibly committed to the, like, the withering way of the state are defending the last vestiges of the state or a certain image of part of the state, you know, because what's left then is just the repressive state. What's left is policing, courts and prisons, you know, and, and it's, you know, I, I'm very curious about a kind of acceleration, you know, an anti-statist accelerationist position which directly deals with those because, you know, the point would be, you know, fine anti-localism, anti-primitivism, blah, blah, blah. Oh. But, you know, there are political um, positions or, you know, p- political positions you are in which maybe mean that you go to the court to support people. Or, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, there's a, there's a sense in which, you know, you may not care about the state, but the, care, the state will care about you. Oh. And if the state is merely its repressive 
dimension. You know, you're forced into a relationship to whatever is left of like a nation state. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, you know, it's another problem um, to which I'm saying accelerationism doesn't have an answer. I don't know if I do. I mean, I'm one of those old socialists who desperately cling on to remaining bits of the welfare state. Um, my grandmother's 92, um, fortunately not that well, but not that ill, but she you know, still remembers the introduction of the welfare state and the fact that you could go to the doctor because you didn't have to pay. Which they didn't go to the doctor because they did, and they didn't have the money. So you know, I quite like that idea mm-hmm. that you could actually just go without paying. Um, although obviously they've introduced various forms of charges and you know, other things to make it difficult. Uh, so and, uh, the other point which I think is is crucial is, again, I don't have an answer, but it, I think it seems to drop out of a lot of debates, not just around accelerationism, but around left politics or critical politics, is the military and the militarization yeah. of social life. The countryside life. also. I mean, the countryside, you know, yeah. this image of the rural, I mean, I tried to say it in the piece mm. you referenced, you know, the, 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 the rural, British rural, it's always <coughs> been fancy. I mean, it's always been the most militarized place. Mm. You know, flying back from Sarajevo, you see the, the gate two with the plane flying back to Bryce Norton. Mm. You, know, like the, the, you know, the relationship between the military, you know, the or, always already militarized English countryside in particular, yeah. which is just where I grew up, when we completely filled with RAF army yeah. But, you know, it's... And uh, Patrick Keeler's films completely... Mm, uh, the, the last one, the mm. Robinson and Ruins, completely show this. <coughs> yeah, so, I mean, you know, there is this... You know, it's a... Uh, I think Beverly Silver's probably right about this, you know, as the capitalist state one. You know, it's happening... In, it's like it happens in every job. It tends to replace uh, people with machines to reduce costs. So, you in the military, you have fewer military personnel with more firepower so that's one of the, the stories so you know you get increasing um, you know, weapons have increased the firepower of platoons and things like that so you have small units you have uh, privatised military so at the incident at Warwick you get like, private security and the police um, it's a minor not for those involved but you do, that's the kind of thing that happens um, so there is not a mass involvement, so it's very hard to have mass resistance to it because, as she argues, with citizen conscript armies, you know, there was a tendency after those wars to pay off basically people for risking their lives of the state. You know, so that's why you would have, sort of, she argues, major reforms after wars because now they're much smaller groups of people um, in, with much more... <laughs> Firepower, which is why you're getting these sort of militarised police with much more technology. You know, they're carrying much more firepower in the form of CS and those things. And in the US, obviously, always been armed. So it's, on the one hand, there are less of them, <laughs> but that creates a kind of mass insecurity as well. So that breeds a kind of, you know, a pro-desire. We all, well, I think, we want the police to stop crime against people when it's happening um, whatever massive scepticism we should have uh, obviously but so you get both kind of reactions you get a kind of desire for the police desire for policing military intervention because they're so this seem to be not there and this massive militarization and violence of it when it does take place and I think you know that's again it's something that a response to the state 
to these existing forms, you know, before we get to questions about how to retool technology generally, is like how would we engage with those militarized technologies? You know, not simply, you know, converting drones to peaceful use. The good drone. Um, Derek Gregory was nicely sarcastic about this at the conference I went to at Lincoln. You know, said it's always like bad drones or good drones. It's never. Firstly, lots of targeted assassinations are not carried out by drones, um, but by troops or. Uh, helicopters, and also, you know, it, it just ignores the whole kind of assemblage to keep going on about, you know, good drones that have agricultural benefits. So instead of getting that, we've got this actually sort of struggle with the the whole of that kind of arrangement. Sorry, I was going vague. No, um, I was I was just wondering, uh, picking up on this. Uh, picking up on this conversation about policing and militarization, but also kind of um, going back to, I, th- I think, like during your talk, you kind of made um, a few accusations of racism or um, at least taking on the tropes of racism. Um, uh, and I just remember that one, one of the initial critiques of the Accel- Re- recent accelerationist manifesto, one of the like, initial internet critiques was that, well, it's all, it's all well and good for um, some white men, but th- as you, uh, but but there's there's a, there's a problem with the kind of inhumanity of um, this kind of like accelerating machine wherein the the rate of industrial uh, like if you take the metaphor of industrial accidents the rate of industrial accidents um, increase and or then weigh heaviest on um, those kind of racial like black racialized bodies and gendered bodies uh, and the the kind of fallout of accelerationism weighs heaviest on these people mm. but like, uh, but also you mention um, you mention afrofuturism in the book mm. uh, which to me kind of seems, kind of seems like a a, a kind of acceler- a different sort of accelerationism, accelerationism which is more a, a desire for a leap into um, a kind of a more utopian future and so is therefore anti-capitalist uh, in, in that it completely wants to exit whereas the, the form of accelerationism uh, it wants an immediate exit mm. the form of accelerationism that you're t- you, you talk more about uh, um, obviously weaponizing capital's own speed presses against itself so I was just wondering if you wanted to talk a bit about race in that regard, but and also kind of think about we saw we saw and going just to add to this conversation about the police, we saw the the state accelerating its own mechanisms just after the riots by um, uh, imprisoning thousands of people overnight, overnight um, in a, a speed up of its own state processes. Um, yeah. Um, uh, sorry. Uh, on yeah, I mean the state. We'll always do that, you know. I mean, it's you know that's it was a deliberate. Obviously, it was mass repression, you know, about that. It's, you know, that's the aim to scare people out of protesting. So, in a capitalist society where obviously it's in crisis, there are restrictions on jobs. You know, I if you have a criminal record, you're going to get struggle to get employment. So it's a kind of death sentence. Well, you know, it's a kind of sentence on you. Um, restricting you depending on your class and friends and capacities to hide or disguise your criminal past. So, you know, it was a very obvious message to any anti-austerity 
protesters of any sort is that we will criminalise you if you protest, no matter who you are. So that was why they were, you know, locking up people who put things on Facebook. And, you know, it was, you won't get away with this. You know, and it was always a response to the kind of, if you quote, quote, minimal policing or the struggle of the police to deal with the riots and those events in the first place. And then, obviously, they can go back and use certain technological mechanisms to identify people, and that's what they've done repeatedly, is go back and identify and punitively, you know, make an example of. And that's, you know, that's what they'll do, just to violently prevent future struggle, you know, while criminalising other people into then creating a, you know, a useful criminal bunch of people. You know, people who have been criminalised will then be forced into perhaps directly criminal activity because they can't get work or whatever. So it's a, you know, it's a... It's a very difficult um, trick, which, you know, that's why, as Nina was saying, you then have to have legal struggles, you have to have struggles in prisons. That's what happened, you know, in previous processes, is that there were then these emergent set of next wave struggles because of that first thing. It's a question of race, I mean, and gender. I mean, not just because Nick's in the room, but, I mean, I will... You know, there are... Uh, I don't. I didn't think the accelerationist manifesto was racist. I mean, I think it, it's a it's a manifesto, so it ignores lots of things and polemicizes in certain ways. And obviously, there are uh, people who are accelerationists developing various arguments around race and gender. Um, I mean, I've, I'm not got to be made sympathetic to accelerationism. So. Um, the Afrofuturism thing, I mean, I think the interesting thing is, like you said, there is this kind of desire to utterly escape. Um, but what I also found interesting is the way that it encodes the frictions quite more directly. That's what I kind of, I find interesting about you know, sort of Detroit techno and some elements of jungle, which was kind of mixed hybrid, you know, white and black artists. So what I found kind of more interesting is about it is not that it's a sort of absolute escape into a a non-capitalist future, um, but that it's actually coding the kind of the frictions and the pains of the bodies that are being integrated at the time. So I, th- I found it interesting is that it can deal with both sides of that fantasy, the fantasy of escape and the fantasy that you, you know, the reason you're having that fantasy, <laughs> because you can't escape um, that coding. Um, you know, more, I guess, more generally, you know, I think it comes back to the points I guess we're, we're all saying is that, <coughs> which, you know, accelerationism is operating at like a kind of imaginary, you know, level, not necessarily in the negative way, but, you know, it's operating as a kind of therapy, a proposal, a way of, way of thinking. So its answer is always going to be, you know, it's not worked out yet. It's going to develop, and I, you know, in a sense, which is why I write a book about it. You know, I only write things about provoke me, annoy me, so they must have some appeal to me to annoy me. You know, I think what the appeal is 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 that this kind of um, getting out of things is this kind of or immersing and getting out at the same time. You know, is this uh, proposal to cancel those materialities? Um, I don't think it's enough simply to kind of invoke those materialities as 
counters. You know, that's where some of the critiques of localism and identity make sense. But it's it's more important, I think, to understand the ways in which those, as you're saying, the way those materialities and abstractions are bound together. You know, there's not a, a alternative between, um, you know, good abstraction and bad materiality or bad abstraction and good materiality. You know, this is... What happens is identities, experiences are already bound within those those structures, and I think that's what I find more interesting. Is not sort of saying to accelerationists, we need to go back to the material, but to, we need to go back to the abstract in the way it captures the material. Thinking about value, you know, the abstractions of value, the abstractions of state power. What we're talking about is the ways in which they become materialized in quite well in brutal forms. Not only through like direct police violence, but also through this like indirect violence or criminalisation, also through the violence of unemployment, you know, the violence of depression, mass drug taking, uh, you know, all those kinds of violences of experience of social space, um, you know, circulation, you know, the violence of just worrying every day about your mortgage or your rent. Um, you know, it's that's what kind of interests me, I think, and that's I can see why accelerating to forget all that would be great. <laughs> it's the part of the appeal to be able to kind of get a handle on that. But I think to get a handle on that, we need to think in terms of these sort of more specific moments of integration between the two. Sorry, Brandon. sort of out of interest, if we allowed accelerationism to um, draw a final conclusion, would that actually lead to, you know, taking the European context, would that actually, the ultimate solution is the breakup of the European project as we kind of know it? Well, in different ways for different accelerationists, probably yes. Um, so for left accelerationists, because it would be a it would be an attempt to articulate a global political hegemony, so it would be using, I imagine, uh, you know, technological resources, uh, perhaps some concentrated in Europe, but to operate globally. So it couldn't be the European Union or unity or Europe that we have, because that would be too small a, you know, too small a unit for them. Um, I mean, that's my problem. Is like, how would you get to this kind of global unity without the specificities? Uh, in the way for Nick Lands, you know, I mean, global capitalism is, you know, for him as kind of hyper capitalism. You know, as we, he wants this um, you know, capitalism to eat itself by becoming kind of absolute. So for him, China is the model, you know, a state that is completely willing to, in his well discuss the Chinese state, you know, a state that's willing to go all the way, you know, that's his desire, a state that's willing to allow experimentation on its own citizens, to, you know, develop biotechnology without any constraints at all, um, you know, that kind of thing. So he would, you know, favour a kind of globalisation of that um, space, or if you follow his sort of neo-reactionary line, which is, you know, I I don't know him, so I don't know how seriously he takes it. It seems quite serious. Those neo-reactionaries, mainly American cyber entrepreneurs, 
You know, they believe in a future kind of feudalism where they're obviously in charge. You know? <laughs> As I always joke, I've done this many times before, you know, in apocalyptic or future scenarios, you know, it's always like imagining you're the leader. You know, never that you get killed at the start or you're the peasant. You know, it's, um, you know past life regression, no, no one regresses back to, you know, their parents tilling the field, uh, great, 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 great parents spending 40 years, you know, tilling, which I'm sure mine did. Um, so they imagine a kind of fractured world of their little thief kingdoms, uh, you know, where they get to do what, do what they like. Um, so, <coughs> you know, I mean, I guess there's some ways to imagine, you know, certain I mean, I'm not that familiar with the post-war history of the EU, but, you know, there's certain ways, to, I guess, to imagine certain uh, formulations of the European Union itself as sort of slightly weirdly accelerationist in the sense of, you know, forming U- Europe as a, as a block that has a, you know, identity formed around the Enlightenment, around uh, technological development, and would then kind of export that. So there has been a kind of, I guess, a struggle within Europe for different versions of Europe as a process of modernization. You know, that's what I was broadly saying with the kind of Swedish versus neoliberal model, although problems with both sides of that equation. So yes, I mean, that's what I'm sort of saying is uh, you know, cancelling Europe, forgetting about it seems to be the accelerationist desire, which I think is understandable because of the um, you know, catastrophic failure of Europe, like Nina was saying, from for some of us, if you're on the left, or I mean, even if you're on the right, it doesn't you know, it's not exactly presenting itself particularly well. You know, I mean, I think there's been a failure in its own self-articulation as a project. That's you know, it doesn't have an ideology per se, except to kind of you know, baseline accelerationist ideology of continuing to, to make money and retain a level of hegemony, political hegemony, to control that. Obviously, with the more sinister kind of uh, expansion of um, NATO, I guess, for military historians amongst us, would be the other kind of interesting side of the remnants of Europe. I'd just like to ask... Um, sorry. It seems one way of understanding um, the dynamic at stake here is that all of these moments of accelerationism, not just the contemporary moment, but the past artistic moments we're pointing to, have involved uh, a denigration of the here in favor of the elsewhere. There's some other space where technology is happening and we need to make it happen here, and it's a, a vision of acceleration elsewhere. And that seems to be where these movements are drawing their libidinal dynamic and their energy from. Um, so with regard to your own geography, with regard to your, your sort of counter-proposal to some extent, where, where would you say you draw your dynamism from if it's not from elsewhere? Because you have an equally uh, negative view of the, the local, perhaps. Or, uh, I mean, I, I, I would imagine that if some of these people were here now, they'd say that you're trading on drawing energy from a nostalgic vision of the social welfare state that they would argue you know, has been eclipsed or never existed. Is, is that, do you see that as where the, the drive comes from in your thought? Or... Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that would probably be fair. Uh, I mean, I think that's what I sort of try and talk about at the end of the book, you know, I mean, and as, without going overboard on this, I mean, I think there, you know, there has to be a certain kind of, you know, accelerationism is premised on its libidin, 
libidinal kind of drive, you know, sexy. I mean, I would question whether it is or not, but yeah, that's what I do in the book. But you know, and there has to be, I think, in a sense of like for a counter proposal. That's why I sort of say at the end of the book, you know, simply saying slow down, you know, slow food movements, you know, the sort of embrace of certain kind of religious ideologies of um, was it Peter Osborne I was listening to his talk was saying David Harvey has this weird thing in his 17 proposals for his future as we should all be walking slower in the future Peter Osborne rather intemperately but accurately put it, I don't want to be told uh, <laughs> communist society shouldn't be telling people how fast to walk um, should be, you know, surely we should be allowing the rich and free development of walking speeds uh, which is true um, uh, so you know, I think it's, I guess it's, a, you know, my personal politics, if you like, uh, are formed out of that uh, desire to see more freedom through retention of areas of life not subject to the commodity, you know, so I think that's, a, that's what I see as the problem. But I would say, you know, to reply to accelerationism is about, you know, also articulating this in a way that's about pleasures, in a way that's about expanding possibilities and is not simply ends up being a kind of morbid, uh, you know, you know, it's all going to come out of our misery kind of argument because that is a sort of, um, you know, that's a tendency that I, you know, I think misery can keep getting worse without leading to you doing anything about it. You know, I think we, you know, I don't think misery on its own um, activates anything. It can do as part of a collective political uh, process or project. But, you know, we've seen and experienced, and, you know, um, even in this country, you know, there's uh, areas where my partner lives in South Wales, you know, benighted is the word, you know, valleys have been abandoned after their steel miner strikes, and people are basically on heroin, on, on unemployment, and have been for 30 or 40 years now. They're not in revolt, you know. Um, you know, that's so. I think it's, you know, in terms. I guess why I agree with accelerationism. You know, I think part of the project is trying to articulate these connections. I just don't think, you know, and I think it is interesting with the UK because, you know, maybe it's just being British, but it does seem a pretty malignant kind of social formation if you're on the left. You know, there hasn't been a strong left-wing tradition of, of a radical kind. You know, the, the current political landscape is obviously um, extremely right-wing. But I think there are, you know, that comes back to Europe again. You know, there, there has to be articulations between struggles. I mean, everyone's been saying this for years, so I'm not saying anything original. Um, and I think that's where all the problems start. But I think, you know, to respond to these desires and drives, you have to engage with people's our desires and pleasures. You know, it's not... Austerity is what capitalism is giving us and asking us to like it and to become more austere and asking us to sacrifice more <laughs> for them, you know. And I think, you know, it, was, it seems this will perform an opportunity... <laughs> to articulate uh, a politics of anti-austerity that wasn't based as, you know, a politic, anti-politics of sacrifice. <coughs> Do we have a last short question? Short comment? 
If not, then I hope you'll join me in thanking once again.